0: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. A pretty fancy bear hunt in Germany, a new IoT botnet surfaces. Cryptojackers exploit a salt bug, bribing an insider as a way to get personal data. The UK's NCSC and the US CISA issue a joint warning about campaigns directed against institutions working on a response to COVID-19. Britain's contact tracing app starts its trial. Ben Yellen on AI inventions and their pending patents potential. Matt Glenn from Illumio is our guest, and he wonders if companies should break up with their firewalls. And don't get puppy-scammed. You're looking for wags in all the wrong places. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, May 5th, 2020. Reuters reports that German authorities have issued a warrant for the arrest of Dmitry Baden, a GRU operator wanted in connection with a 2015 hack of the Bundestag. The Zudeutsche Zeitung calls the warrant a bear hunt because, of course, the authorities think Mr. Baden is working for Fancy Bear. He's a person of interest elsewhere, too. There are a number of people in the U.S. Justice Department who'd like to hear from him about the 2016 hack of the Democratic National Committee. Researchers at Intezer have identified a new Linux-based botnet they're calling Kaiji. It's apparently the work of a developer in China, and it's designed to infect IoT devices – in order to herd them into a botnet adapted to distributed denial-of-service attacks. ZDNet reports that Kaiji gains access to targeted devices via SSH brute-force attacks. Pentest partners say they've demonstrated a disturbing proof-of-concept, a crying-wolf attack against Commercial Aviation's Traffic Alert and Collision Avoidance System, TCAS. It's possible to induce ghost contacts in the system, and some aircraft might automatically respond to such false reports by altering course. The potential risk to flight safety is obvious. ThreatPost points out that the ghosts won't show up on radar, and that pilots may well trust, probably will trust, radar more than TCAS, but the proof of concept remains troubling nonetheless. Crypto miners continue to exploit vulnerabilities in the SALT Remote Task and Configuration Framework, Computer Weekly writes that Zen Orchestra users have been affected, as have users of the ghost blogging platform. The Register reports that DigiCert has also been affected. The UK's National Cybersecurity Center, NCSC, and the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, this morning released a joint advisory warning that APT groups are targeting both healthcare and essential services. While such attacks could either be state-sponsored or the work of criminal gangs, and while both kinds of threat actors have been active during the pandemic emergency, APT, Advanced Persistent Threat, has come to be functionally equivalent to state-sponsored threat actor. The advisory summarizes the goals of the campaigns as follows, APT actors are actively targeting organizations involved in both national and international COVID-19 responses, These organizations include healthcare bodies, pharmaceutical companies, academia, medical research organizations, and local governments. APT actors frequently target organizations in order to collect bulk personal information, intellectual property, and intelligence that aligns with national priorities. The pandemic has likely raised additional interest for APT actors to gather information related to COVID-19. For example, Actors may seek to obtain intelligence on national and international healthcare policy, or acquire sensitive data on COVID-19 related research. End quote. The threat actors are actively scanning for specific vulnerabilities in their target systems, specifically Citrix vulnerability CVE-2019-19781, and vulnerabilities in virtual private networks products from Pulse Secure, Fortinet, and Palo Alto Networks. They're also engaged in large-scale password-spraying attacks. The UK has been particularly concerned to block these threats, which have been particularly active against the country's biomedical research sector. The Wall Street Journal calls NCSC's response a pivot and reports that measures are being taken to protect institutions engaged in vaccine research. The venerable firewall is a tried-and-true component of cybersecurity, Tirelessly keeping watch over your network, keeping the bad stuff out. But some say there's a tendency toward over-reliance on firewalls, and a closer look is in order. Matt Glenn is vice president of product management at data center and cloud computing security company Illumio.
1: If you think about the original firewall, it was basically the perimeter of an enterprise versus the internet. It was sort of the thing that was making sure that the internet couldn't get inside of your enterprise. So it was, you, you were either on the good side of the firewall or the adversarial side of the firewall. And it is a great perimeter device. The challenge has been, and I think that uh, most of your listeners will sort of you know see this, is that the threats are no longer popping through from the outside in. There's a lot of internal things that happen, right? So the first thing, that a bad actor will try to do is infiltrate. How do they try to infiltrate? Malware. So instead of it coming in, you know, someone trying to, you know, pierce the firewall, what they're doing is they're relying on somebody clicking on a bad link, downloading something bad onto their uh, devices. And then, you know, suddenly that threat is now behind the firewall. And so what did organizations begin to do? They began to put more and more firewalls inside of their enterprises. And that is just, you know, that creates a lot of complexity to manage all those different firewall rules. And now you're creating more and more perimeters inside of our enterprise, which, you know, from a security strategy perspective is a good idea, right? And I think, you know, when Wi-Fi came in, you know, the access of the network was, you know, literally piercing outside of the four walls of a building. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we see people putting more and more firewalls like in front of their data centers, right? And now... Well, I think the new sort of threat landscape is, you know, we have our perimeter firewall. Our users, you know, uh, are going to get impacted at some point. Um, I have some customers where they actually have people working for organized crime that come into an organization as a developer. So the assumption is that you've already been breached. That's sort of the new mindset of CISOs. So how do you basically ensure that the breach that has already taken place and you have to assume breach that it can't spread and the answer to doing that is segmentation so the Mm. first thing that uh, a CISO will do is to say oh let's buy more firewalls to do that well the problem is that driving more and more firewalls into your data center is costly and disruptive in that you know you may have to re-architect your data center to insert them and i think that's why things are starting to break down in the report that we uh, put out the state of uh, security segmentation sort of speaks to that point.
0: What is the transition like? If someone wants to adopt what you're proposing here, how is that uh, that turnover period,
1: what is that like for them? Here's the, the good news about it. There is no change to the underlying infrastructure to do it. There's no sort of modification of the network. In fact, at a lot of customers, the question is who owns this? Most frequently we do see that network teams own the segmentation problem because you know segmentation is classically a networking problem. Okay. The good news is you don't have to modify the network in any way, shape, or form. What organizations do, and what I always tell customers to do is start by concentrating on the people and process. And what do I mean by that? Work out the process for how you're going to do the brownfield segmentation. Target like, you know, nine, 10 applications and build that up. It's not very hard to do um, once you sort of target those people in process to go into your brownfield and, you know, take care of segmentation, but without breaking any applications.
0: That's Matt Glenn from Illumio. The U.K. today began to pilot its contact tracing app on the Isle of Wight. Matt Hancock, Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, gave the Islanders a bucking up. The Telegraph quotes him as saying, "...we'll learn a lot, we'll use it to make things better, and we want to hear from you. Where the Isle of Wight goes, Britain goes." The British system is something of an outlier among the more recent approaches to contact tracing in that it represents a centralized approach to collection and analysis of data. The Telegraph has a description of how the app is intended to work. It's an opt-in system that uses Bluetooth for sensing proximity and that depends upon self-reporting of positive diagnoses." A skeptical piece in the Register outlines some of the challenges confronting the NHSX-developed app, and a second Register article reports that NHS has informed Parliament that it intends to retain the data it collects even after the pandemic passes. The centralized collection and analysis and the plans to continue to use data for research has led to calls for close legislative oversight of the system, Computer Weekly says. The inadvertent exposure of a contact tracing database in India has aroused suspicion of such efforts security and privacy, SC Magazine observes. The Washington Post has an overview of how such suspicions are currently being manifested around the world. In the U.S., while there are other projects under development, the joint Apple-Google exposure notification app has attracted the most interest. It's decentralized, opt-in, and will not use location tracking, Reuters reports. And finally, not all human-animal interaction during the pandemic has come in wet markets. There's been a striking rise in the rate of animal adoptions as people look for companions during a time of isolation, with Wired having gone so far as to say that animal shelters are empty. That's clearly an exaggeration, at least if taken generally and literally, but it does seem that pet adoption is up significantly. Since demand equals opportunity for criminals, there's also been a spike in what naked security calls puppy scams. These are like romance scams, only using cute pictures of dogs as the catfish. You send your money in for an adoption, and that money's gone with nary a puppy in sight. So, animal adoption has become popular fish bait during the pandemic, maybe even overtaking colloidal silver as a cure for what ails you. If you're looking for an animal to adopt, there are reputable local shelters who can put you in touch with a pet needing a home. There are still dogs and cats out there who could use a home. And animal, vegetable, or mineral, don't be fooled by cute pictures that turn up in your email. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, and he is also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, great to have you back. Good to be with you, Dave. Uh, You have an interesting story to share this week. Uh, This comes uh, from Motherboard uh, on the Vice website, Uh, and it has to do with
2: artificial intelligence and some stuff from the patent office. What's going on here? So... Last year, there were two uh, patents pending in front of the United States Patent and Trademark Office. One for a shape-shifting food container and Hmm. another for an emergency flashlight. The interesting thing about these inventions is that they were not invented by a human being. They were invented by uh, DABUS, an artificial intelligence system. Now, the system was created by a researcher, a guy named Stephen Thaller. Uh, but the issue in front of the uh, patent court was whether you could grant a copyright or patent interest in something created by a non human, created by artificial intelligence. And the Patent and Trademark Office said that inventions, uh, that only human beings can be inventors. Artificial intelligences uh, cannot be inventors, only natural persons. Uh, have the right to obtain a patent. Hmm. So until this decision came out, the law around this was pretty vague. Patent law referred to individuals as entities that could be inventors. Uh, Of course, the question was whether individuals just meant natural persons or artificial intelligence. I mean, DABIS, the artificial intelligence system, according to, you know, some definitions might be considered an individual. And so finally, the Patent and Trademark Office has provided some uh, clarity here. What other researchers have said is they really should allow artificial intelligence to be able to be granted uh, patents and trademarks um, because it's sort of analogous to a senior advisor who has, you know, mentored a PhD student into coming up with an invention that patent should belong to the student the person who's learned from the inventor and not from the inventor him or herself mm. um, and i think what the court is saying here is you can't make that analogy the phd uh students is a living breathing human being unlike right. uh the robot artificial intelligence uh in this case so um sadly our robot friends and and (laughs) if you actually we we put off our robot overlords for a little while longer uh, they're not able to get patents yes we've we've bided (laughs) just a little bit of time uh it's so funny that on the front page of this article there's a picture of various (laughs) robot toys and they just look so sad that their patents have not been granted um but alas uh only human beings uh can can be granted these patent and trademark interests
0: you know, this are, a couple of things. This reminds me of. One of them they they bring up in the article here, and and the first is the there was the case with the monkey taking a selfie of itself, and some folks trying to say that the monkey had copyright to
2: the selfie, and ultimately the copyright office said that no, only humans can be copyrighted. What I love about that is PETA went to bat for the monkey which I guess is, <laughs> of course, is very on-brand for did. PETA. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. It's not yeah. just trying to
2: get us to stop e- you know, <laughs> eating meat. It's let's grant intellectual property rights to monkeys. Right. Um, but, right. you know, good for them.
0: But the other thing that this makes me think of, um, which is not quite so lighthearted, I suppose, is that um, I remember when um, the laws about gay marriage were making the rounds, hmm. and there was lots of discussion about that, uh, you know, some folks on the right would say, well, if I, if two men can get married, two women can get married, why can't I marry a goat, right? Why why can't we just, why can't it? And, and of course, the, the response to that is, well, a, a goat is not a human being. A goat is not, uh, you know, can't have, um, there's no contract law that applies. Marriage is a contract, and you can't have a contract between a human and a goat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously a, a half-serious... Uh, uh, argument to illustrate something. But but this reminds me of that also in that, you know, humans have rights and machines and animals do
2: not. I don't want to get too deeply into existentialism here. I can't <laughs> claim to be an expert, but right. there are some things that are unique about human beings. Um, we are aware of our own existence. We have emotions. We have feelings. Uh, we have dreams and, and aspirations and machines By and large, do not have those things? Although the more advanced the machines get, you know, as you say, they will eventually be our overlords. Maybe they'll start to develop (laughs) uh, some of those qualities. But yeah, I mean, there is a serious point in there that only humans can be human. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I sort of think that might be underlying the rationale uh, for this decision.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's
2: all a simulation anyway, Ben. We're, so we are really living matter. in a simulation. <laughs> yeah. This is just one of many universes. And right. we happen to be in right. one of the worst ones right now, unfortunately. <laughs> well, there you go. Keep, wait, keep your chin up, Ben. Keep your chin up. I will try. Yep. <laughs> all right. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
0: Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire.